Welcome to the number one South Asian radio station in North America. Ruckus Avenue Radio. I'm a doctor, a father, an American, an Indian. I've had conversations about life from every angle. And as I've navigated the South Asian experience, I share stories of people and their purpose. And what they're saying over and over again is, trust me, I know what I'm doing. I'm Abhay Dandekar, and on this episode of Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing, I'm joined by the funny Indian, comedian and host Rajiv Satyal. Stay tuned. So the Home Office of Writers told me to go teleprompter on this one, so bear with me. So let's see here. First off, subscribe to this podcast and follow us at My Good Friend on social media. Tell listeners to do this first. Okay, great. Check. Next, let's talk about humor. It's fleeting, nuanced, beautiful, almost cranky. It's essential as a life skill. It helps us live longer, and it's an important part of our communication arsenal. Who doesn't have an internal chuckle or even an outward laugh when they have a truly hilarious moment or string of moments? But cultivating that thought, that idea, and that inspiration into storytelling for an audience, well, that takes a different skill, especially to do so as an Indian American in the time we call 2021. So since this show badly needed a comedy and charisma boost, I turned to Rajiv Satyal. He's known as the funny Indian, and he's as genuine and as clean of a comedian as they come. Let's see here, reading off the teleprompter, here's what it says. Insert shameless plug to visit rajivsatyal.com, giggle awkwardly, ha ha ha. Pause for a second. Rajiv's a 15-year veteran comic who's from Cincinnati, worked at Procter & Gamble as a marketer, and of all the comedians who've ever been to Antarctica, he clearly stands out among the finest. He was an active voice in getting the South Asian American vote out in 2020, and is an intelligent, empathetic, and incredibly humble artist. Or again, that's what the teleprompter says. In a fit of serendipity, we caught up recently, and I asked him about politics and about how he thought Joe Biden was doing. There was a report on this recently that comedians are disappointed with Joe Biden because he isn't providing the kind of fare that we normally like. And I would back that up. For one, I've kind of taken a break from politics because I went so hard for five years. People are like, don't you mean four when Donald Trump was in office? I go, dude, remember he started running in 2015 right. and he didn't really stop running till 2021. And so it's well over half a decade. And I just need a breather from the whole thing. So I haven't been writing a lot about Biden specifically. He's not inspiring it. And I think it's because, one, it's so turned down from where Trump was. And two, Biden seems fairly competent. He's not really tripping or stuttering or falling. And let's see how the rest of it goes. But he's really not providing a lot of comedic material. But sometimes it takes time. It took a while to get to Obama. It took a while to get some to some of the presidents before. They're not all George W. Bush. Is there some relatability to that for you? Like you can sort of put yourself in that in that position of saying, hey, listen, it's a performance night in and night out. Yeah. You know, I've never really been big on the if you can't see it, you can't be it thing. I know mm -hmm. that that's sort of anathema to people who are always beating the drum of representation. But then that wouldn't really explain the first, the pioneers, the people who did it first, who didn't see it, and then they were it. So I kind of feel like he is the everyman Joe Biden, but I really just want to know what you're doing. That's really the big thing. I kind of almost don't matter. It doesn't matter even like how you're doing it. When Donald Trump was running for president and he talked about raising taxes on the wealthy, 
he got my attention. I was like, oh, I could vote for this guy. Like, oh my gosh, are you kidding me right now? I go, wealth inequality is the defining issue of our times. If this asshole is the guy that's actually going to do that as a Republican, I'm telling you, I'm going to consider voting for this guy. And then, of course, he changed his tune and took a million different positions on a million different topics right. and, of course, went in the complete opposite direction and governed mostly as a Republican does anyway. So namely an asshole. And so therefore it was kind of like, you know what, at the end of the day, I will give anybody a chance, especially if you're speaking to my issues. I don't really care much about your personal life. I don't really care kind of how you come across to an extent. I think Trump was too obviously dialed up or dialed down or whatever you want to call it. But I, uh, I'm fine as long as you're, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm Janet Jackson, man. What have you done for me lately? I mean, and less fodder is, is always, you know, better in some ways. And um, not having too much uh, sort of comedic material is is probably a blessing for us, especially after the last four years. A friend of mine said, what is bad for the heart is good for the art. But I tell you, I'll make that trade any day of the week and twice on Sunday. I will be happy to make that trade. You know, I'd rather have a country than an act. Well, as a comedian, maybe that's not true. But really, I would really rather the nation be attacked. And if we're not as funny because of it, I think that's a small price to pay. Let me ask you this as a performer and, and even probably some of this bleeds into politics as well. You know, a lot of outsiders or, or folks on the periphery, even like myself, might overlook the preparation and the rigor and the toil and the real hard work, you know, that goes in and, and simply just evaluate the product and the end result and the jokes and, and the material that, that comes out. Is this just the nature of the business? And, and does it sometimes surprise folks how much actual work goes into the writing and the preparation and and all the planning to to create an act or, or pre create a production. I think the one part that comedians want people to understand is how hard it is to write material that it's going to make hundreds of people at once laugh. Right? It's almost like the Abraham Lincoln quote of fooling some of the people some of the time, etc. It's a similar kind of thing where. Yes, I can tell jokes that maybe will make 10 people laugh. But if you're asking me to tell jokes that are going to pay the bills, yes, it's hard. And so I think that's the one thing people want. We comedians wish people understood, like there's a process to getting the right wording and the precision of the whole thing down. And I think Jerry Seinfeld has done a pretty good job of trying to get that out there for people so that they can understand that that act isn't something you just came up with. I don't think people thought you just came up with it, but I think that they think, oh, you could write a new hour and what does that take, like a month, two months? Right. right. And, and, and God bless them. That's not their fault. They're not in the field. But at the end of the day, that's why when I'll perform even for doctor organizations, and I know early in my career, uh, a physician said to me, you did the same jokes. I go, well, I go to your office. It's the same tests. Right. right. You still have yeah. the same stethoscope. You still take yeah. my temperature. How about some new tests, doc? Yeah. It's the same thing. You're doing it because it works. Well, and I mean, you know, I, I think you're right that there's there's a huge element of routine to it, right? And 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 having that routine gives you the muscle memory to now perfect the craft and and then use it again in your next routine. And yet, you know, for folks who actually are able to do this, I mean, the perception is is that, hey, this is who you are all the time, right? I mean, you're just coming up with, you know, great material as you as you're being, um, so to speak. So I mean, is there in fact, at least some element of spontaneity and an organic nature and equality to, to both the, the prep and then also the product. Definitely. And there has to be, I think, for people like me who got out of Procter & Gamble, got out of corporate America, not because we hated it, but we don't like the sense of repetition in a job. And I'm not saying my P&G job was necessarily that repetitive. I could say that again. I don't think it really was. But I think the idea of doing something rote 
or by memory. There's nothing about which to get excited. There's got to be that joke you can't wait to tell tonight, right? Yeah. You got 45 minutes, or you got an hour, or whatever, but man, I got this new chunk that's like five minutes long, and I really want to give that to them. That's what I'm excited about because I know the rest of this stuff works, especially at a paid gig because you're not probably at this point been doing it for 15 years. You're probably not going to bomb on a paid gig because yeah. you your job is to make people laugh whatever you got to do short of stealing material you got to do whatever you got to do and maybe short of tickling people maybe that though like if you're getting paid a good chunk of change you got to make them laugh but i think there are times where you're in your in a more artistic room or you're doing an open mic or whatever you got to be ready to bomb because you're still trying to find that place where it's going to get legs but otherwise yeah you got to keep it fresh and that that to me is uh that's the fun of it is being able to write i think my best work has been in sort of these solo shows where there's a solo show about dating about music about politics about school that to me is fun because it gives you a little bit more room to run comedians are philosophers but if you're confined to an hour of only making people laugh i think you can only be so insightful if out of those 60 minutes you give me like i'll still make you laugh for like 50 of those minutes but can I intersperse 10 minutes throughout that are maybe a little bit more philosophical, hopefully not preachy, but, you know, poignant, et cetera. I think it's a stronger hour. You can take it home with you and it takes the pressure off to make you laugh every 10 seconds and you're, you're going to get a better show. I think what you said was, was actually pretty insightful in the sense of like, it probably makes for better, better storytelling, right? I mean, the experience is probably more than just that sort of real aha joke that, that was made and that's a real kind of home run for you. I'm, I'm assuming that as a seasoned comedian, you probably know inherently how and when you're funny, right? I mean, is that sort of like a feedback loop that's that's pretty good? And, and then conversely, is it is it harder sometimes to know when you're not funny? I think so. I think we all have on nights and off nights in any job. You're an engineer, a marketer, a politician, a doctor, a comedian, an actor. There are times where you just don't have it. And you know, you still hopefully have a baseline level of it. And I think Steve Martin had written in Born Standing Up, great book, was as you get better, it's not only that your best show and your best nights are better, your worst nights are better too. So mm. your your ceiling is higher, but your floor is higher. Yeah. And so I think there are times though where you go, man, yeah, I just don't have it tonight. And that, that's where you got to rely more on just the skill and the craft of, okay, I'm not really going to be able to be spontaneous tonight. I think I'm just going to have to stick to my set. I'm going to the crowd. It's not really working, whatever. And you you try all these different gears that you have. That said, I mean, I'm pretty funny on most days. And I think I can generally find what's going to make people laugh. And so I am funny at home. I am funny with my wife, whatever. And I don't feel like I'm I'm trying. I don't feel like I'm pushing. I feel like that is just my take on the world. But I, I think that that's so I can generally make almost anything funny. Uh, so I don't worry about that. But there are nights where you're like, man, you just don't. And even socially. And, and it's weird. This last week, I just couldn't really talk. It was weird. I would trip over words. I would trip over punchlines in real life. And uh, I was hanging out with some friends. I go, yeah, I just, I'm, they're like, yeah, you're really not articulate tonight. I go, I know. It's just weird. I'm sort of stuttering and all over the place. I'm losing my train of thought. And it's been that way for a week. I think maybe I'm starting to get it back, but it's been really frustrating. But that happens. Batters get the yips, writers get writer's block. It happens. Sort of the comedic mojo that, uh, you know, sort of comes in and out and, you are someone who's an Indian American, you're from Cincinnati, and this is, I'm going to assume, a relatively unique combination in Hollywood. So how does that backdrop and, and that combination sort of bleed into your daily work now? And, and you brought up the idea of sort of like captivating, you know, a group for, for more of a storytelling 
um, aspect where you do throw some intellectualism in there along with the sort of comedy of it. How, how does that sort of combination of being an Indian American from Cincinnati really affect your work uh, today? It does. And I always believe that if you live at an intersection and just build something there, it helps. So living at the intersection of all things that are funny and Indian, and my handle is funny Indian, my website is funny Indian, I'm glad you think it's gold, which is also very desi of us to call it gold. Yeah. I think that you are trying to own an intersection, trying to own something where you can either dig or build or what have you there. And so I think also having these different threads of saying, okay, you're very Midwestern, you're also very global. There's a sort of like non-provincial side to me. And so that's been an interesting balance. And then I'm clean. So I think, you know, you're going, wow. So you're sort of like the clean brown guy from the Midwest. That That's definitely something you can sort of own as a brand or these different threads or different strands to your personality. So sure. I think it does come across you, you. You know, I think of stand-up, it can be a window or a mirror. And mm -hmm. so what it is, and I think a lot of art is this way. And so when it's a window, you're showing people a different perspective. They're looking at the stage and they're looking through a window. What, what does that mean? Well, it looks they're they're looking at something that they haven't seen before. They're looking at a different perspective. So it's almost like there's like, oh, he's one of them. And it's not to otherize, but it's like, oh, this is a different perspective. Other times it's a mirror where it's they're seeing themselves as like, oh, he's one of us. Yeah. And so I think it's interesting to play back and forth of that, especially if you stand on stage in Ohio and you're brown, it's like, oh, well, he listens to Def Leppard and he's just like us, but oh, right. he's also been to Cape Town and he's performing in Antarctica. What is that like? So I think there's that idea. There's some comedians who just put a stake in the ground that are like, you're coming to me. And that's really ballsy and really brave and really bold. And I, other words that start with B, but I tend to be someone who's going to come to you and then bring you to me. And that's how I am in my real life. I'm usually the first one to make a move. I'll come over and shake your hand, whatever. I don't necessarily expect you to come to me. So that's more my personality. But I think it's important for comedians to figure out what feels organic for them. Because some mm -hmm. people are just, they're who they are and you're on board or you're not. And they're right. artists and I love that. That's a very David Bowie, very Prince way of doing it. But sure. I'm not that much of a genius. Well, it's a, <laughs> probably irrespective of you know, not being able to take the um, temperature of the room, so to speak, and saying, hey, listen, you know, you put your stake in and saying, you know, I'm in it to win it no matter what. And it may not necessarily, you know, fly um, for those. And I, I, I'm curious then for, for you, is, is this the kind of extroversion or even confidence or self-trust that you've had since, since day one? It is. Yeah, I think I was imbued with that. My parents have always been very reinforcing positively. That doesn't mean they don't have feedback and it, the feedback can be harsh at times when I need it. And yeah. I, I consider that though positive in the sense of helpful. I realized my experience is very different from most people's. And Asif Manvi and I had this conversation where he said, when I interviewed him in San Francisco, near your neck of the woods, in front of about 500 Jews, it was at the Jewish Cultural Center, it wasn't all Jewish people, but it was interesting how he said, I believe if your personality is bigger than your race, you mm -hmm. probably did not experience as much racism. He had a very big personality. Mm -hmm. I had a very big personality. So my brothers who were younger actually experienced more racism than I did. And mm -hmm. my take was more like, this is easy. What's so hard about being brown in a white world? I don't think that's really that hard. I've come to appreciate that in people, but I also think it's a balance. I still think that most people are good. I think the system is not unbeatable. I think it's very conquerable. It may require some compromise. And I think these days people are unwilling to compromise and mm. that can be good. Like I'm saying, putting your stake in the ground, yeah. 
But I kind of feel like it's kind of a dickish attitude that people have sometimes. Like, well, I'm not, I'm not accepted completely for who I am. I'm like, right. is anybody? I don't yeah. even think if you're a cisgender, straight white male, you're completely accepted for who you are. So right. I don't know. Tell me one thing. I mean, for many, including me, this whole concept of Hank Azaria and his sort of, you know, voicing of the Indian accent and, and then his apology recently for that portrayal of Apu brought out lots of different reactions from, from folks. I'm curious what your reflection is on this as an Indian American, as a comedian, as someone who's, you know, lived this through your upbringing and, and how you reacted to maybe some of the, you know, news and, and also uh, what Hank Azaria had to say. I wrote a piece on this called The Problem with the Problem with Apu. So my friend Hari Kondabolu, who just today confirmed that he'll appear on my upcoming talk show, we are still yeah. very good friends, made a documentary about this called The Problem with Apu. And I wrote a rebuttal to it. It was picked up. It was syndicated mostly by Canadian media, interestingly enough. And I was on some talk shows to talk about it, radio mostly and all that. And my point was largely that this is a character that was born in the 80s. And if we want to retire that character now, that's one thing we could do. But Hank Azaria is labor. He is hired for a job. He's not writing those lines and he is performing those as an actor. And so this whole notion of you can now only portray what you are is is recent. So I don't think he really owes anyone an apology. Does anyone owe anyone an apology? I think not really. I think it's I think it's a victimless crime. I think that society emerged and evolved and you know, good on us that Hari could make a documentary that had an effect. That means we have a voice that actually defeats the whole point, which is we're being victimized. It's like, no, we could stand up and take notice and make us make a stand yeah. in sort of this meta ironic kind of postmodern way. Then Hank Azaria ends up apologizing. But that's fine. I think that's gracious. I've heard he's a really good guy, really nice guy. So I'm glad yeah. to see that. I've always been a fan of Hank's. But I also kind of feel like I don't know that that was necessary, but I, I don't agree with a lot of apologies in general. I, I, I think that they're, if you're going to do them, they should be sincere. But I also feel like, I don't know, uh, sorry, not sorry, a lot of the time. For me personally, it, it strikes me for, for two chords. One of them is that, you know, the Indian accent for me is a huge part of my Indian American experience. I'm 50. I can squarely place myself in the uncle crowd, but for me, the uncle crowd is very much the uncle crowd. You know, in, in some ways, that that's my frame of reference, and and it actually it, it honestly bothers me um, to some degree artistically when someone's not capable of pulling off the accent in 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 the right way or correctly putting it together. And Lily Singh, Russell Peters. Uh, I mean, the Canadians probably are doing something right here in, in that way because they are pulling it off and they're doing a great job with it. Do you think that there is reason to include the Indian accent as part of our narrative as Indian Americans, whether it's comedy or storytelling? I mean, is there a place for it? It's really, really tough to say because I feel like you know, I'll, I'll perform in some alt rooms, some alternate rooms, you know, that, that are more, you know, avant-garde and, you know, you'll go to these crowds that are very hip and whatever. But I got to tell you, Abhay, like the jokes that make people still laugh the hardest are the, is the stuff that you're not supposed to laugh at. And stereotypical ethnic jokes, while people will say they're above them, will still get a big laugh and probably the biggest laugh. And 
that's where I've been torn because a large, large part of my early, early career, I did none of it. And then there was a mid chunk of my career where I did a lot of it. It was still about a third of my act, two thirds of it was not, but it was still a, a good chunk. And now it's kind of looked at as something you don't do almost. I've like, okay, I've explored that. So I can move yeah. on to something else. And a lot of the comics coming up, they'll use it or won't or what have you that make a big decision about it. But where I got some blowback, at least in comments, was the point I was making about Hank Azaria and the Indian accent is it's just funny. Yeah. It is a funny sounding accent, just like the German accent sounds kind of evil and scary. And yeah. people commented like, oh, that's so racist. I was like, when and, and Tig Nataro did a bit about this, the comedian, where she said that she was doing a set and she ended up doing this on late night where she was doing her set and doing all her material, and working so hard. And then she moved the stool. And it made a funny noise, like a stool makes on the floor. Yeah, yeah. And everybody laughed. And she's like, gosh, if that's all it takes, then why am I writing all this material? Why did that's I right. just move a stool yeah. around the floor? And so that's what she did for her set. It was hilarious. And it just yeah. goes to this meta place of, is she just going to keep doing this? Yes, she can. It's not funny anymore. Now it's funny again because she's still doing it. And you're just going, the Indian act, the burda, 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 it's just yeah. funny sounding, man. I don't know what to tell you. And people yeah. who are like, well, that's racist. I'm like, well, maybe you don't have a sense of humor. Well, and I mean, to some degree, if I'm asking myself to think about a portrayal of suburban life as an Indian American growing up, I, I know that that Indian accent is all around me. And whether it's funny or not, perhaps is a different frame of uh, or a different question. But the idea that it should be absent for me personally, I mean, incorrectly performed it is one that that I'll have to sort of ponder a little bit more. Well, here's what I bring to the stage also. I hear my dad's accent. I don't hear my mom's. My mom does have an accent, but I've never heard it. Yeah. And so when I do my mom, I do a flat American accent. When I do my dad, I do an Indian accent. And I'll sometimes even say that in the show because I knew the questions were going to come before anyone could even ask. But it's like, I'm just, now I'm giving it to you real. I don't hear my mom's accent. Yeah. So for me, that's grounded in some kind of reality. Tell me this. I mean, as a, as a clean comedian, um, you know, is it possible to take to that level of portraying your own experience, the South Asian American experience, the Midwest experience, and in 2021 to try and, and garner views and likes and even in the digital world, is it, do you have to be edgy? Do you have to be, you know, is there a way to make this uh, type of art unoffensive and yet very, very much popular? I think it's, difficult because you need to take a stand. Comedy will always have a victim. So it is negative in the sense of it's not really to build things up, it's to tear things down. That's what comedy is. It's 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 not painting, it's sculpting. You're you're taking things away. And so from that standpoint, you know, being clean is a major impediment to success because it really boxes you in with how far you can go. And I'll evolve that with time, with shifting standards. So I just finally publicly on Facebook started saying shit. I didn't say shit ever because I figured it was a bad word. Well, I evolved with the times. Now that word is not bleeped out yeah. on cable, sometimes not even network. It is said on CNN without a bleep. And so you're going, okay, I'm going to evolve with the times. It's the 20s and I'm going to move forward with this. And so I think that those sorts of things change and you evolve with that. But I've long known that I've made it much harder for myself to get big because I'm clean. It's just, it's a much slower burn. But the idea is that, you know, the time at the top would be longer too. 
Well, it's good to roll with the FCC when it comes to, you know, what your what your speed limit is or isn't. Do you think that as a great comedian and, you know, someone who is is really trying to garner more and more success and following uh, or even an observational entertainer, if you, if you consider yourself that way, is it critical to in some ways demonstrate a lot of vulnerability, especially when it comes to being able, able to relate to more people? It is. They say that which is most personal is most general. Yeah. So I love that. I love the idea that if you talk about yourself and your hopes and your dreams and your fears, uh, you know, we all think we're weird, uh, but there's 7 billion people on the planet. You're probably not the only person who does whatever weird behavior you think it is. I, I might be, actually. I very well might be the only person who does the weird stuff that I do. If you want to share, go for it. But I tell you, I, I, I saw Judd Apatow at the Laugh Factory and I told him afterwards how brave I thought this was. He was up there, Abhay, and he was talking about how when he watches TV, sometimes he'll watch and he'll just like have his socks on and he'll have his legs crossed and he will be tapping his toes, like his second biggest toe, which you probably know there's probably a word for that that toe, and, uh, and, your, and his big toe. And he would tap out the syllables as the commercials were on, and it would bother him if he couldn't end on his big toe. Such a personal, weird thing to confess. It's way weirder than some sex thing, because right. sex is just inherently funny, which is why I don't talk about it a lot on stage. I'm like, yeah, anybody can get a laugh with that. That's not really that interesting. Sure. It's like, but yeah. I think sitting and watching TV is a very mundane activity, and if you're confessing something that's really bizarre that you don't know if the room's going to go with, I think that takes a lot of bravery. Well, and, and maybe you know, teasing out the weirdness in all of us is really the secret. And and for that to be the ingredient for longevity, is it a matter of just constantly finding what those vulnerabilities are for both yourself and for your audiences? So, so meaning, is this really a process of self-discovery as you go through your career? It is. I, 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 and I think that's why I like being a talk show host, you know, independently, but I enjoy being a podcast host and interviewing people on video and all that stuff too, because Sometimes I just want you to tell me what your art means, right? I, I'm, I'm into symbolism and all that, but sometimes I enjoy the explanation of it. There's a great Seinfeld where George Costanza is invited, I think, to the Guggenheim Museum and, and he doesn't want to go. And his explanation is, look, I, I always have to have somebody explain it to me and then somebody has to explain the explanation. I'm like, gosh, that's, that's so well said. That's so true about a lot of art. And so sometimes I just want people to explain it to me. Yeah. And I find that stuff very interesting what's what's next for you now what's uh what's what are you optimistic about for this coming year and you know it's been uh, a lot of you know political uh, unrest and you know obviously we've gone through a pandemic and you know as we're exiting both of those i i hope um what do you what are you looking forward to look we were talking about the man in the middle and that was going to be the name of a talk show I was going to launch and it was the name of a solo show i did about politics took it to capitol hill had a democrat tell a joke a republican tell a joke members of congress super fun about to launch it and then the insurrection happened. And I realized, wow, there's just no way to strike the balance between the woke cancel culture left and the insurrection right. And those labels have sort of fallen by the wayside and it's being reborn and all this kind of stuff. But I realized, wow, my wife said to me, Hersha, she goes, I just worry about your mental health. Like you don't suffer from anxiety or depression historically, but this is a great way to get into that. To start introducing yourself to it, right? Yes. If you want to, if you want to, you know, experiment, it's a good gateway. 
yeah. you know, to, to try to get into that. And so uh, she goes, I just, I don't want you to, you're already pissed off all the time. I'm like that pissed off uncle already. And, you know, yelling at the TV. And I always wanted to be that. I was like, I saw my dad yell at the TV. I want to yell at the TV. Like, I just right. want to yell at a better TV. And so, you know, it's like that, that's, that's, that's progress. You're yelling at like a bigger flat screen. That's, yes. that's progress in our, in our community. So I think that was, that was my uh, ambition, but I was like, look, let's just downshift into creating a talk show where we are going to feature South Asian creators in North America. And I think that's what I'll do. I'll invite really cool people on the show. We'll talk about what they're doing. We'll be the one-stop shop for entertainment. And that's what we're building right now. I've got a producer, a booker, a marketing manager. It's going to be shot right here in the studio. There's more than just the gray wall to it. And that's the thing about which I'm the most excited because honestly, I really don't have a lot of hope for the future of this country. I'm really been gutted to the point where I'm like, okay, Biden's in office. That's great. But man, I, I, I really, and I'm a natural born optimist. I've really become a pessimist. I'm like, it's, we've got like three years before this whole thing collapses. And I, I'm just trying to enjoy it the most of it. Well, two things. Number one, let you not have any gateways to a world of anxiety. Um, and, and the second one is, is that after you've been on this show, it's basically the resume accelerator you can you can only dream of. So um, my 12 listeners will will be the ones who will populate your your new talk show. And and so will I. And we'll, we'll all be grateful for it. And Jesus had 12 listeners, so he did OK. You know, sometimes you start with 12 apostles and you have a religion 2000 years later that's still going strength to strength. I think that is the mic um, drop of all mic drops. So, Rajiv, thank you so much. It's been a treat. I hope you'll come back and, and join us again. I'd love to return, Abay. I loved your questions. They were very insightful. I felt like we've known each other for years. And if people want to find me, I'm at Funny Indian on Instagram. I'm sure you'll plug all that stuff. But it's been a blast getting to know you and talking to you as well. Thanks so much, Rajiv. A big shout out to all the graduates out there. Don't forget to dream big along the way and floss regularly. And remember everyone, in life and off the teleprompter, if you think it's funny, then that's all that matters. I'm Abhay Darnika. Ruckus Avenue Radio.